good morning. It is good to have you here with us. Good to have you online. And if you're online, I want you to know this is the biggest service we've had in over a year. So, it's, uh, I mean, it's crazy in here. It's amazing. It is go so good to have you. Uh, people ask me every week, how is it preaching to, to real people? Um, not that online you're not real people, but people in the building, and it's fantastic. So whether you're in the building or online, we're so glad that you're with us. We're in this series, Meals with Jesus, and we've been looking at these meals that Jesus had throughout his life and ministry and the impact. Sometimes it was something that he said, it taught, a lesson that he gave. Sometimes it would change someone's thoughts or their attitudes. Sometimes he would break social mores and norms and even religious, man-made religious rules. And very often he would completely alter the trajectory of someone's life that was at a meal. The meal that we're going to look at today had such an impact on the disciples' lives that I would dare to say that they would go to their grave and never forget what happened at this meal. It would not only be um, just emblazed in their memory, it would transform their life. It would change their life. They would never be the same. And this may be a, a bold statement, but I pray that you would hang with me and, and let me give, give me a chance to, to uh, validate it. That what happens at this meal would not only change these 12 disciples' lives, it would impact and change Western civilization. I know, I know, that's a grand statement, but hang with me. And I pray that what we see today will continue to change our lives as well. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, about two and a half weeks ago, um, I came across an article that was published in the New York Times. I don't read the New York Times. I actually don't read any Times. Um, but I read this article, and the article was uh, called Last Meals on Death Row. And the essence of the article was, about America's obsession, their fascination, their, their, their voyeuristic sensationalization of what it is that someone is going to eat right before they die. Specifically, those who have been sentenced to the death sentence and are on their way to the execution, what is that last meal? And because of that, this fascination, it has resulted in, in all kinds of things. There have been uh, documentaries done about these meals. There have been studies and surveys done on these meals. There have been scholastic academic uh, articles written on these meals. There have been books that have been written. Um, artwork, there's even as dark and as morbid as it seems, there is a cookbook entitled Meals to Die For based on the meals that were chosen. It's like there's something about when this person has, this is their last act of control of their will. It's the last thing they can choose. It's the last thing they have any kind of semblance of control over. It's their last piece of somewhat of, of pleasure or joy in this world before they go into the next. And today we're going to be looking at one of those kind of meals. We're going to look at, an, at a meal that an individual who was given the death sentence would eat. It would be his last meal before he is executed. You know what I'm talking about, many of you. Made very famous and very familiar with an, a piece of art that was painted 525 years ago in Milan, Italy, when Leonardo da Vinci paints his depiction of the Last Supper. Jesus and his 12 disciples in the upper room, partaking of the last meal he will eat before he goes to his death sentence and he is executed. And here he is with his 12, just 12, not thousands on the hillside, not hundreds, just 12 at this meal. Later it would be 11. One would ask to be excused early and self-select out of the rest of the meal. What's interesting is that this happens, you know, kind of in this uh, last week of his life. 
if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they talk about the three years of Jesus' life in ministry. And a few of them talk about his birth and one little instance of his uh, preteen years. But in the three years that they record, when it comes to the last week of Jesus' life, this holy week as we call it, from Palm Sunday to the Resurrection Sunday, that the Gospel writers slow things down to a snail's pace. Matthew and Mark spend almost one-third of their gospel talking about this last seven days of Jesus' life. Uh, Luke spends about a quarter of his gospel. John, however, spends almost 50% of his gospel talking about the last week of Jesus' life. And what's amazing with John is that he gives this inordinate amount of time, this disproportionate amount of time to this meal. John spends five chapters giving us an exclusive inside view of the things that were done, the things that were said, the prayers that were prayed in this room at this meal. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all happen in that upstairs room around this table. And today we're going to look at a portion of that out of John 13. We'll get there eventually if you want to turn there. I'm going to give you some backdrop to set that up, but we will get to John chapter 13. This section in John 13 through 17 is often referred to as the, the farewell discourse. And Jesus covers some huge things in there. The, the Holy Spirit, he, he, the, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, I'm the vine, you are the branches. All that is in this. It happens up here. And in this, um, Jesus and his disciples are there. He's talking with them. And they've had, for three years, hundreds, literally hundreds of meals with Jesus. Many of them forgettable. Many of them memorable. Some of them over the last couple of months we've looked at that they would remember, that that would be emblazoned in in their minds. But nothing was like this meal. This one was different than all the rest. Luke records it this way when he says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined. We looked at that a few weeks ago, you know. Reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Little pause here. If you were not able to join us last week, either in the building or online, I want to strongly recommend that you go back online and either listen to or watch last weekend's sermon. What Pastor Kip did as he talked about Jesus in the Passover, I mean, honestly, for me at my sake, I could have listened to that. He could have just kept going on and on. It was so incredible with the Old Testament, with the history, with Jesus and the fulfillment and how that impacts our lives. If you were not here last week, please, for your own sake, go back and watch that, read that, uh, listen to that. So Kip talked about that. So Jesus said, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. And then he makes this troubling statement. The kind of statements that he's been dropping. It's like, like, why does he say these kind of things? He says, before I suffer. Oh, why does he say that? What's he getting at? And then this, this confusing, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Well, what's that about? I don't know. And then he goes into this whole thing, and he institutes what we call communion or the Eucharist, the bread and the, and the wine, his blood and his body. And then he drops this almost like a, a cursory uh, statement that is a bombshell. He says to them, and one of you will betray me. And the Bible says that brought about some discussion. What we don't know is, did Jesus leave the room and they were having a group discussion? Or was it just a few over here saying, who do you think it is? Do you think it's Matthew? Do you think it's Peter? Probably Peter, you know, Bartholomew, all this discussion. I think what happens is it starts as a discussion, then it becomes an accusation. I think it's you. I think it's you. Then it becomes defensiveness. And then as a result of that, it becomes posturing. 
Because in verse 24, it says, also, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Here's Jesus having the last meal he'll eat on this earth before he's crucified, before he's executed. His disciples, he says, one of you are going to betray me. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who should be considered the greatest. And you can imagine all the, the posturing that's going on here. Jesus knows that if this issue is not confronted, if this attitude is not changed, not only will it be destructive to these 12 guys in their spiritual journey, it will be detrimental to this kingdom of God that he is going to leave in their hands. Somehow he has to instill in them. Somehow he has to convince them. Sometimes, somehow he has to, to guide them from this attitude from hubris to humility. And he really only has about four hours left with them to do this. This is a big task. How is he going to shift their mindset? How is he going to shift their attitude? How is he going to change them? I mentioned that grand statement that what happens at this meal shapes all of Western civilization from that point on. And here's why I would say that. In our culture, you know, when it comes to humility, we value humility. Humility is seen as a virtue. When you have experienced, seen, or heard about someone who has true humility, not like some kind of a pseudo-humility doing something for the camera, a little photo op, something to help their, their image or their campaign or, or their book sales. No, no. When you've experienced someone who really doesn't look for any kind of accolades, doesn't look for any kind of recognition, any kind of, any kind of gratitude, or just, just humble, there's something appealing about that. There's something attractive about that. There's something admirable. I mean, it's beautiful. We look at it and think, wow. And the converse is the true is that when you've experienced someone who's just filled with pride and ego and self-aggrandizement and it's all about themselves and they posture themselves, there's something that's just kind of off-putting. It's, 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 it's like, oh, eye-rolling, like, come on. It's, it's ugly. This might not be fair, and, and, and I apologize if I'm way out of line in this one, but let me give you two names to illustrate this. What comes to your mind when you hear these names? Mother Teresa, Kanye. Now, that might not be fair, but there's something here that says, wow, there's just this beauty. That's, that's amazing. And some here are like, serious? What next? And, and, you know, and it's not just us. Throughout the pages of Scripture, multiple times, we see God's heart on this. And the Bible says repeatedly, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We love humility. We want to see that in our children. We, we love it in our leaders. We, we want it in our culture. We, it's, it's a value. It's a virtue. It hasn't always been that way. Jim Collins, in his book, uh, Good to Great, uh, I refer to this book quite frequently, talks about these, these companies and organizations, uh, corporations that have stood the test of time, and while others faded out, they went from good to great. Talks about a lot of stuff. But in there, he talks about some of the leaders of these organizations that really excelled, that, that raised, were, uh, rose uh, head and shoulders above the rest. And he gives this kind of this diagram of the leadership in level one, level two, level three. And then he talks about these level five leaders, like this highest level of leader, and this paradox of a level five, lead, level five leader. He says this, a level five leader is an individual who blends extreme personal humility with intense professional will. 
it's not the, the, the man or the woman who's all about just building their kingdom or achieving the goals or getting the bottom line. It, there, there's, this, there's this extreme humility in the midst of pursuing a goal or, or a, a, a passion or a, a pursuit of their, their company or organization. Now, when you look at Jesus and these 12 guys at the table, the 12 guys are all arguing about who should be considered the greatest. There's not one level five leader in the whole midst, and Jesus is getting ready to turn over the eternal kingdom of God to them. This is an issue. Now, before we get too harsh on these disciples, I think we need to give them a little bit of grace because of the situation that they were raised in. Um, a couple of months ago, I read a book, um, didn't read it, I consumed it, I couldn't put it down. It's uh, probably 10 or 15 years old. It's a book called Humilitas by a guy named John Dixon. Uh, and as I was reading this, he points out that in the Mediterranean societies, Egyptian society, Greek society, uh, Roman society, even Jewish society, that these societies were based on a, an honor-shame culture. That the whole idea of this is that for an individual and a family, honor was the highest value. Honor was the highest goal. You would do anything to be honored, and shame or low, low status was the thing to be avoided. When you begin to understand how extreme this was in their culture, the, the, son, the story of the prodigal son takes on incredible impact that we don't even get with, with what the son did and what the father did in an honor culture. That in an honor culture, you would do whatever it takes to make sure that your public status and your public honor would continue to increase. It was an asset in your life. It was the highest goal and value. And any kind of public shame or any lowering of status was to be avoided. In fact, it goes so far as to recognize that humility was seen not as just something to be avoided. Humility was seen as repugnant. It was, it was disgusting that anyone would be humble. It's an amazing thing, as he points this out. So, so um, in, in this book, Humilitas, Dixon, he's a part of a, of a research project from a secular university. And he says this was not a faith-based deal at all. The university doesn't even have a theology department. They don't even have a religious studies uh, track. For It's a purely historical ancient history. They said, why is it? Where is it? How is it that... For so many years in our world, humility was seen as this awful thing, and yet today it has become this virtue. What happened? How did that change? Where was the difference? And as he lays this out of this academic, scholarly, deep research over history, he says it didn't happen overnight, but you can pinpoint when it began to turn, and it began to turn with a historical figure named Jesus. And we can see in the Gospels that that change begins to happen at this meal and what would happen 15 hours later. That all of humanity and every idea about humility would be changed starting here. The disciples would never be the same. Western civilization would never be the same. And I pray that we are never the same. All right. Introduction complete. You ready? John 13. 13 verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus knows he's not long for this world. In fact, he knows that his life is going to end the next day. He knows how it's going to happen. He knows what these guys are going to do. He knows all this, which, little shameless plug, Wednesday night online, we have our refuge service. We're going to be talking more about that. Please join us online Wednesday night for our refuge service. He knows what's going to happen. He knows how his, he's going to be arrested. He knows that the trial is not going to be fair. He knows that he's going to be executed by, by crucifixion. And he knows these 12 guys that are sitting around the table that he is eagerly desired to eat this meal with are going to betray him, desert him, and deny him. He knows all of that. And now he shows them. He doesn't tell them. He doesn't lecture them. He gives them a lesson. He gives them a demonstration. He gives them an example. He shows them the full extent of his love. Most of your translations probably say he now loves them to the end. Accurate translation. The problem is if we only see that as the fulfillment chronologically. That is true. But it's not just loves them to the end of his life. It's this idea of loves him loves them completely. It's the fulfillment. It's the perfection. He shows them the full range of his love. And you say, well, isn't that on the cross? Yes, it is. But it also starts at this meal. For three years, these guys have walked with him. They've heard him talk. They've seen what he's done. He is their leader. He is their teacher. He is their rabbi. And they get little glimpses that, yeah, he's more than just a teacher and a rabbi, but they don't fully grasp it. Here's this man, Jesus, phenomenal teacher, amazing healer, unbelievable leader. But he's greater than that. And they don't see it yet. They don't fully understand it. What we need to remember is that, yes, Jesus was 100% completely human, just like you and I. But unlike you and I, he was also 100% completely divine God. And John gives this statement in chapter 13, verse 3, that is so filled with the theological truth about Jesus. Verse 3 Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from the Father and was returning to God. He'd come from God and he was returning to God. For you and I, there's debate about when life starts and when your life is viable. I believe that when the sperm fertilized the egg, your life began, you were stamped with the image of God, and then we start counting days on the day that you breathe your first, they spank you and you cry. That's your birthday. Not the case with Jesus. Jesus didn't start living on December 25th, zero. This is the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus, that Jesus had come from God. We didn't. If you've been taught that you were a little spirit baby up there in heaven for millions of years until God got fed up with you and said, you're going to heaven, I need a break, or something of that nature, that's not how it happened. But Jesus existed before his birth, existed before he was here on earth. You remember some of you in John chapter 1, where John starts off and says, in the beginning was the word, the Logos, Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In Colossians chapter 1, where it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's not a chronological deal. That's an authority entitled firstborn over all creation. For all things were created by him and for him. Things in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and through him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the eternal, infinite creator and sustainer and redeemer of all things. This is the preexistence of Jesus. 
He was with God. He came from God. He's going back to God. And at this point, God has put all things under his power. That means that he has all authority of all things, of the cosmos, of creation, of heaven, of earth, of the spirit realm, of the material, physical realm. He has all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus, take the wheel. He's got it all at his fingertips. Here is our infinite, eternal, omnipotent, sovereign, all-powerful God in Jesus. So he, stop for a second. He knows that his days are numbered. His hours are numbered. He knows what these 12 guys are going to do. He knows what Pilate and Herod and, and, and the Roman guards and the Jewish crowds, he knows what all they're going to do. He knows about the execution. He knows about crucifixion. He knows that. He also knows that he has all power at his hands. So he, what would you do in that situation? If you had all the power to do whatever you wanted, and you knew that you were going to be wronged, and you knew that these people who claim to follow you and loyal, they would throw you under the bus, and you, what would, I mean, okay, don't go that far. What would you do if you had all power at your hands, and you were driving on I-5? It would be scary. Someone comes up, and they're tailgating you. You look in the mirror, and you think, you know, I have all power. You look in that rearview mirror, they're just riding your tail, and you just say, hmm, Sorry about those flat tires, boop, 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 and there they go, because you've got all power. Someone comes up and cuts you off, cuts you off in traffic, and you're about to get angry. You said, no, I have all power. Boy, sorry about that reckless endangerment ticket you're going to get in the revoking of your license. Wee, wee, wee. <laughs> you're waiting in line as people are merging in, and someone goes way up to the front and cuts in, and you're like, oh, boy. Sorry about jury duty for the rest of your life. <laughs> Someone's coming at you. They got their brights on. They won't turn them off. They got those lights that are almost blue, and they got extra ones on the top of their truck and all this light, and you can't even see. You say, oh, man, sorry about your hemorrhoids. I mean, you would have all power at your hands. You would be dangerous. Jesus has all power at his hands. Everything is under his power. He knows what's going to happen. So what does he do? So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, if you've never heard this before, you might be going, that's weird. It was a cultural thing. We can get into that if we want. For those of you who've heard this before, you say, yeah, that's, that's my Jesus. That a boy, that's, that's what I love about Jesus. I love me some humble Jesus. That's amazing. That was not the disciples' response to this. Their response was, no, no, no. I mean, Peter's the only one that says it, but they're all thinking it. They had experienced something like this just a few days earlier at Simon the leper's house when it was Jesus whose feet were being anointed. They'd seen it before with the sinful woman who had the sinful past. We looked at that. And those were awkward moments, and they were over the top, and they shouldn't have happened. But this one, this one far exceeds everything. What Jesus is doing for them to them was unthinkable. It was unsettling, unnerving. It was unacceptable. It was troubling. It was disturbing. Why, why? No, no. No, Jesus. Now, let's put their response on hold for a second and think about our eternal God who has all power in this moment. Psalms 91 says, The Lord reigns. 
he is robed in majesty. Psalm 104 says that the Lord clothes himself, robes himself with majesty and splendor. And this Lord of ours, who's robed with glory and majesty and splendor, gets up from the table and literally takes his outer clothes off and metaphorically lays his glory and his majesty and his splendor aside. Psalm 104, it says, he wraps himself in light. This one who wraps himself in light at this meal takes the towel of a servant and wraps himself with the tool, the lowliest one. Psalm 104 says that he controls all the waters of our world, from the clouds to the ravines, the rivulets, the streams, the creeks that go to the rivers, to the lakes, to the expanse of the ocean and the deeps. In Isaiah 40, it says he holds the water in the hollow of his hand. And at this meal, he controls just a pitcher of water. And the one before whom every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow bends his knee. And the one who Isaiah says sits upon his throne with the cherubim circling saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now circles this table these guys who are unholy, 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 unholy. And the most high God takes the lowliest position as a servant. What he is doing at this point has so many layers they can't even comprehend. On the one hand, he's meeting a very real practical need. But he's also setting an example. And he's giving a foreshadowing. It, it, it's a need, an example, and a foreshadowing. The, on the practical end, on one end of the spectrum, it's the need. Is that their feet were filthy. It was customary. You, someone comes into a house, a guest, then a servant would wash their feet. And no one has done this. No one has washed their feet. And their feet are filthy. And so he meets a practical need. But on the other extreme, the other end of the spectrum, it's a foreshadowing of what will happen in 15 hours. What he does at this meal with washing his disciples' feet is, is like a microcosm. It's a glimpse of what he's going to do for all humanity. As humiliating and as humbling as it was to wash someone's feet, that was eclipsed by the humility of hanging naked on a cross. And as he kneels to serve them, he will be lifted up to serve the world. And while he cleanses their filthy feet, what he does on the cross will cleanse sin-stained souls.
And he washes their feet with water. And he cleanses our soul with his blood. And the 12 who will betray, who will desert, who will deny, and he welcomes them and he serves them with arms of acceptance spread out on a cross to a world where all have sinned. He serves. He serves these 12 guys. And the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They have no idea. Y yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. They're speechless on him even washing their feet, but he's given a picture of what he will do for the world. It's a practical need. It's a foreshadowing. But it's an example as well. In this book, Humilitas, they point out that in all of ancient literature, you will never ever find recorded someone of superior social status willingly, voluntarily washing the, the feet, that washing the feet of someone who's inferior or a subordinate. Never in any, any ancient literature until this, John 13. It's the only place. So he washes their feet. And he comes back to the table, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? How, how do you answer that? Yes, but no, and not, I know, I, no, I, I don't know. You call me teacher and Lord, titles of authority, and rightly so, for that is what I am. It's an example to them that here he is, not lecturing them, but giving them a life lesson. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, at uh, President Biden's inauguration, I was watching his speech. And by the way, this is not political, so just save your emails, okay? I was watching his speech, and he made a statement in the speech that was amazing. And he was talking about the United States in the, in the global arena. And he made this statement. He said, we will lead not by the example of our power. We will lead by the power of our example. And I heard him say that statement. I'm like, yeah, hopefully that's the case. But I thought, that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus does. He has at his disposal all the power of the cosmos. He could do whatever he wants, and he leads not by some display, some example of his power, but by the power of his example. And the disciples are arguing about who should be considered the greatest. I mean, he's tried to get them to understand this before. He's told them, learn from me, take my yoke upon you. I'm gentle and humble in spirit. Come on, guys, learn this. There was a time when he points out how, how the world and the Gentiles, they, they posture and they power up and they lord it over one, one another. And in Mark 10, he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This is so counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's counter everything. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as ransom for many. What he does is this radical redefinition of greatness and servanthood. He just turns the whole thing upside down. And what he does is that he sparks a humility revolution that would change their lives and change Western civilization forever. That suddenly humility was not something that ought to be avoided. It was not repugnant anymore. Now it was a virtue. It was beautiful. It was honored. And what he says to his disciples is this. Listen, serving one another, lowering yourself, taking on humility, wrapping around the towel of servanthood. It's not an evidence of shame. It's proof of greatness. You want to be great? You've got to change your understanding. You've got to change your thinking. And he demonstrates it to them. All right, hold that for a second. Um, Dale Bruner and his uh, commentary on the book of John talks about uh, the V pattern of Jesus, the V pattern of Jesus' life. And, and this V pattern, he talks about his majesty, his humility, and his glory. Now, I don't have to, I mean, he does a great job, talks about Hebrews, the epistles, the gospels, he, he paints this all this stuff. But his majesty, this apex, this pinnacle, the zenith, down to the nadir of humility, and then back up to the apex and the zenith of, of glory. Uh, let me give you a, a simple version of this. He's at the table. He gets up from the table. He washes their feet. And then he turns back to the table. That's a real simple one. Or how about this, what we just saw. He came from God, preexistent with God in all of eternity. He makes his way down to earth to do the Father's bidding and the Father's will. And then he returns to the Father, back to heaven in all of its glory. Or how about this one? He comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. He's the king. He comes down to crucifixion and the grave. And there's a resurrection and the ascension back to glory. John 17, when he prays, he prays, Father, the glory that I had with you before the world began. In essence, I've laid that down and I have done your will to glorify you. Now return to me the glory that I had with you in your presence. And what we see here is that the majesty of Jesus allowed him to pursue humility, which resulted in glory. There's a parallel passage that happens with this experience at the Last Supper. And in the early church, most scholars, I mean, the vast majority of scholars, believe it was a hymn that was sung about Jesus. It was a song that was written about Jesus early on. It was a hymn. And if it wasn't a hymn, it was a liturgy that they would repeat, and they knew it. Paul talks about it in this book, this, this letter that he writes to the church in Philippi. And he talks about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, majesty, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he what? He humbled himself. We, we read that passage and we think, yes, he was God. He was completely God, despite the fact that he was God, in spite of the fact that God. Nevertheless, even though Gerald Hawthorne in his uh, uh, commentary on Philippians says, that's the wrong way to read it. What you need to understand is that we don't say, even though he was God, he did this. We need to read it this way. Precisely because he was God. It was his godness. It was his majesty. 
who being in very nature God, precisely because he was God, he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the what? Glory of God the Father. His majesty led to his humility, which resulted in his glory, and that's how he wants us to live. To recognize our value and our worth is in who we are in Christ, not what we do, not our accomplishments, not how much we make, not what we drive, not what we wear, not where we live. It's who we are in Christ. And when our confidence and our identity and our value is in Christ and who we are in Christ, that frees us up to humble ourselves. And when we do that for God's glory, as it says in Psalm 8, he crowns us with glory and honor. Back to the meal. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash, you'd think you'd say, my feet. Have you noticed? No one's offered to wash Jesus' feet yet. His feet are still filthy as well. No one said, hey, hey, Jesus, let me, let me do that for you. You would think you'd say, come on, guys. I mean, I washed all 12. Can, can one of you do mine? Or, or one on each foot? Or two of you, maybe? It's not what he says. It says, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. See, humility is not just thinking less about ourselves. Humility is acting on behalf of others, is, is thinking about them, is doing something on their behalf. Jesus came to establish this others-centered kingdom. And in a world that was filled with an honor and shame society where humility was to be avoided at all costs, Jesus said, no, it's to be pursued at the cost of your own rights. You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. So Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. A Greco-Roman culture steeped in honor and shame culture. Humility was to be avoided. And he writes these words. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that. Christ Jesus. This is our calling. For those of us who follow Christ, humility isn't just something we ought to value, think is beautiful, admire in others. This life of selflessness, of other-centered, of humility, of servanthood is our identity. It's it's, it's living a cruciform life of greatness. This cruciform, a life that's been formed by the cross, like, like the cross has transformed us, has changed us, our thinking, our attitudes, and our lifestyle.
Dixon, in his book, Humilitas, says this. He says, humility is not an ornament to be worn. It's an ideal that will transform. Humility transformed the lives of these 12, which in turn transformed the kingdom of God, which in turn transformed the Roman Empire, which in turn transformed Western civilization. And it all started here. And it transforms our life. So Jesus is having his last meal before he's executed. He knows that one of them is going to betray. The rest are going to desert and deny. They're arguing about who's greatest. He washes their feet. They're speechless. He asks them if they understand what's going on. They have no clue. He says, I want you to follow my example. And then in verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. We think about saying a blessing at the meal. Jesus lived the blessing at the meal. And he says, then I want you to live that, to bless others, to experience the life of blessing, to follow in his footsteps, to seek humility and to seek to serve, because that is the way to greatness. You know, this is Holy Week. It's a week where often there's times of reflection, stations of the cross, different devotionals, refuge online Wednesday night, please be a part of it. A time where, where we're encouraged to contemplate and, and to meditate, to think and to dwell on, and, and please do. But here's the challenge I want to give to us this week, this Holy Week as well. That it's not just a week of contemplation. It's not just a week of, of being a monk in, in isolation. But it would be a week where every single day we would look for ways to live this blessed life that Jesus calls us to. That every single day we would just pray, God, give me an opportunity to serve. In essence, give me an opportunity to wash someone's feet. And it might be a small thing. And, and I don't want to hear reports of it. You don't check in on this. Don't do it for gratitude. Don't do it to be noticed. It kind of takes away, the, defeats the whole purpose of it. Just find ways, big and small ways, with your parents. How can I serve my parents today? My spouse, my kids, my neighbor, my roommates, the people at my school, the barista, the the bank teller, the person at the grocery store, how, how can I just serve? How can I wash their feet? Probably not literally. That could cause you to get into a lot of trouble. But to just serve, to be like Christ. So that's my challenge, is that what Jesus did at that meal, changed his disciples, that changed our culture, let it change our lives.